The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome to Scorebox this Tuesday morning. Plenty of headlines, let's get straight into them. UBS reports a higher than expected net loss for the third quarter, but inflows offer a bright spot. Actually, their Credit Suisse Wealth Management Unit has net new money turning positive for the first time in 18 months. We're going to hear from the CEO of UBS, Sergio Motti, 800 Central European Time. The Nasdaq notches its longest winning streak since January, closing higher for a seventh straight day. But the positive sentiment fizzles out in Asia with equities under pressure. Chinese exports drop for the sixth straight month in October, but imports offer a ray of hope, growing by 3% and beating forecasts. Australia's central bank goes against the tide, hiking its key interest rate by 25 basis points to 12-year high as most of the world's major central banks press pause. We work no more. The office-sharing company wants America's most valuable startup files for bankruptcy. But the SoftBank-backed group reporting liabilities ranging from $10 to $50 billion. Yeah, really love to see you, everyone. Look, let's just uh, go straight into UBS. There's a lot of good news already baked into this company. I'll just tell you the recent history of it. Uh, back in uh, the height of the pandemic, the stock was trading at around about eight Swissy, uh, and then had a, a strong rally up to around about 14 Swissy, which is where they were roughly trading at their low, having decided to take over uh, Credit Suisse. Now trading at around about 22 Swiss francs. So a lot of good news already baked into this company, which today has reported a 785 million US dollar third quarter loss. This after booking 2.1 billion dollars in expenses tied to the Swiss bank takeover. Uh, now the figure compared with 444 million dollars uh, loss attributable to shareholders that analysts had estimated in a UBS poll. So very interesting to go through that. So the, the, the operating money seems to be pretty solid, but it's the expenses still attached to Credit Suisse, which is blighting the headline figure. Now, excluding the takeover-related impact, this is perhaps key for many of you out there, UBS reported an underlying profit of $844 million. Uh, the CEO, uh, who we'll be speaking to in around about 58 minutes time, in fact, exactly 57 and a half minutes time, we are executing on the integration of Credit Suisse at pace and have delivered underlying profitability for the group in the first full quarter since the acquisition. I'll go through one or two more things because uh, our, our, our um, correspondent, Jumana, is actually in Zurich, preparing to speak to Mr. Amotti as well. But the bank reporting a combined $18 billion of net new money in wealth management. Uh, $3 billion, interestingly, coming from Credit Suisse. So inflows yet again into Credit Suisse. Now, Goldman Sachs, for instance, as an analyst looking at this company, had expected $14 billion for the group. So the $18 billion looks a beat on that front. With the takeover, UBS now oversees more than $5 trillion 
dollars in assets. And let's be brutally honest, there are many people in Switzerland who are concerned about the concentration of Swiss GDP in this one financial institution, uh, $5 trillion plus in assets. I'm going to park it there for a moment. Karen, you may have a comment or two on this one as well. Yeah, good just morning uh, to you, by the Good way. morning. A couple of points. Obviously, uh, there's been a huge reach out to Credit Suisse and trying to manage those relationships. And you can see it very much paying off in terms of the inflows. I think that is quite crucial because the Tarnish brand has been something we've been talking about for quarter after quarter after quarter and the takeover by UBS not doing much for the brand either. So I think finally some traction here in terms of managing to secure money from clients. The other point is that the element of caution is still coming through in the numbers today. They did reduce risk-weighted assets by 6.4 billion US dollars and LRD by 52.2 billion the quarter. If you go right forward to the outlook statement, the company is still talking about the uncertainties that remain out there uh, with interest rates being high to tackle inflation, saying the outlook for economic growth, asset valuations, market volatility remains difficult to predict. And they're saying with the geopolitical tensions as well, with these conflicts, they continue to cloud the macroeconomic outlook. So I think that is fascinating that they do have that slightly weaker tone around markets in the commentary. I think that is spot on, if I may add as well. And I think that this is a bank that has a unique opportunity compared to, I don't want to blow in, but it has a unique opportunity that most investment banks out there don't have. And that is the fact that it is taking on an enormous pool of assets. It's taking them on at a stunningly cheap price and it is integrating two operations, something that is not a luxury for many other banks out there, which are suffering the same macroeconomic headwinds that you just mentioned as well. Quick word on pricing, trades at 0.7 times price to book, which is towards the top end of the European banks, although would be at the bottom end of of US banks. So we've still got this disparity in price to book valuations for European assets, European financial institutions compared with the United States. On a price earnings ratio going forward, it trades around about 12.6 times forward, which again is near the top of the European sector. And, and Will, the director, has just asked me to do this one more time. And that is just to say to you on a programming note, we will be speaking to, in 54 and a half minutes time, the CEO of UBS, that is Sergio Amotti. I just want to go very briefly through the, uh, the most uh, val- richly valued company on the planet, that is Saudi Aramco. They've just come up with some third quarter numbers, as is the case with all oil majors out there, whether they be NOCs, IOCs, IECs, which is, I'll just go through those again if you don't know the acronyms, national oil companies, international oil companies, or the, uh, the latter have now changed themselves to IECs, which is international energy companies. Of course they have, the rebranding. Anyway, Aramco, uh, third quarter free cash flow, billion. Now, that sounds an enormous figure, but I want to give you some context. Uh, That is a fraction of what we saw in the uh, third quarter 2022 of $45 billion as well. So it's come off quite aggressively there as well. Cash flow from operating activities, $31.4 billion. Again, a year ago, $54 billion. They are, of course, like all the other majors out there, um, at the whim of the underlying oil price. Although differently from all the other oil majors out there, um, the ownership is pretty much involved in price making, isn't it, in the oil markets, i.e. Saudi Arabia being one of the world's largest producers and obviously the kingpin of OPEC. Second performance linked dividend of approximately $9.9 billion to be paid in the fourth quarter based on combined full year 2022 and nine-month 2023 results. So a few numbers there coming out from Saudi Aramco. A bit of a COP28 precursor, I think, in the numbers too, about the role of gas 
in the energy market and uh, this line about their first investment, first international investment in LNG to capitalise on rising LNG demand. I think uh, you're setting up for very interesting conversations out of all the ones I've had. The message is that gas has got to be part of the solution. Saudi Aramco already saying on the back of this minority interest that it's taken in mid-ocean energy for 500 million recently, just about a month ago, uh, that it is still looking at beefing up investments in LNG. So I think that's fascinating. This is segue away from being solely in oil to be a leading player in seaborne gas as well. I'll pick up on that for me because I think you've raised probably three fascinating points there. One, LNG investment in itself. There is an awful lot of people out there. Let's forget uh, for one second, just park aside the energy transition debate, the move to net zero, the role of gas and hydrocarbons in that. Let's just look at it in pure economic terms. There are an awful lot of people out there investing in LNG at the moment because, of course, Europe doesn't want the Russian uh, product, although it's taking a vast amount of Russian LNG, by the That's way, right, but, uh, yes. which is a slight bit of an issue. But I keep raising it with uh, people and they keep saying, well, we need to kind of have our energy security. Anyway, the point being is there's a lot of investment going into LNG at the moment. And that is potentially going to create, according to a lot of the experts you and I speak to, a glut in supply in 2026, 2027 as well, because these are long-term investments as well. So I think that's very interesting that, you, um, that Saudi there doesn't appear to be so worried about that glut going forward. Or maybe they for think the, the demand picture is going to pick Europe, up even more. Good for Europe potentially if there's a glut and bring you Potentially, but we're still, as we saw with those Australian strikes you know, yeah. quite recently, we're still at the whim of very market. small factors affecting the whole uh, supply chain for Asia and for Europe as well. The second point, I'll just make one more point actually on this one because we've got to move on, is you mentioned COP... Uh, uh, 28 as well. We'll be going down there. We're, we're going down there with a big team uh, for that for later this month, later in November, uh, through to December. The, the problem is there is a huge route already going on about A, the fact that it's in the UAE, B, that the man who is running it is a man I know very well, Dr. Sultan, and I had a very long conversation with him back in Abu Dhabi just a couple of weeks ago as well about the role of a, a man who's seen as a, a hydrocarbon man, That's quite right. frankly, mm. um, something he refused, and he agreed very strongly to me, um, running uh, a climate conference as well. But that's another big debate. And again, the role of gas as a transition fuel or not. That is the line that a lot of the energy majors are now touting because they are in the tent for the first time. And I've been to so many of these big meetings in Paris, COP21, in Glasgow, COP26, where oil wasn't welcome. Now they're welcome to the party. They're in the COP28 talks as well. They've got to prove something very big. Otherwise, it'd be uh, accused of just being greenwash and being a whitewash as well. Absolutely. But I think the whole message around energy security, where we talk about a realistic future around transition, has very much again come to the fore with the conflict in the Middle East. There was already concerns prior to that. And I think it's just sort of ramped up attention again around energy security. But we're going to take you back to some of the big market action, the moves that we saw stateside, more green on the charts. You're now looking at the longest uh, run of positive uh, energy for this NASDAQ and the NASDAQ 100 uh, so far this year. So the longest winning streak since January. Uh, what we've got on the NASDAQ, a pop of a third of a percent. So continuing the action last week, we we're up more than 6% as we closed out the trading week. Big name movers for the NASDAQ, the likes of Apple, but also for the S&P. And it was Microsoft out in front, lifting the fortunes of the Dow, eking out another tenth of a percent. Uh, some fatigue settling in, but still a positive session is what we saw. Markets waiting it out for more Fed speakers. And don't forget, it was the monetary policy signaling last week that saw markets unlock upside from here. And what we're watching out for now, those speakers this week for more clarity on interest rate direction and also what we're going to see around uh, the financial tightening conditions. Treasuries 
It's been an interesting week already. We did fade off that 5% mark, as you can see, in 4.64, where we're trading the short end 4.92 at this point. To the dollar, there was a little bit more support coming back in for the dollar trades after some weakness last week. And you can see as a result, uh, dollar-yen rates popping back to the 150 plus hand or so, further weakening in the Japanese yen. Slight give back of territory for the euro, 107.05, and we're perched 123.29 on the sterling dollar this morning. Cable drifting by about a tenth. A uh, quick look at what we've got on WTI and Brent <coughs> commodities trade. The message yesterday was that the Saudis and the Russians will continue those output cuts, and that did put a prop under the market in trade. The overall position today is a slight opposite to the green yesterday. We're in the red, six tenths roughly for both of the trades to the downside, 80 the level on WTI and just shy of 85 on Brent. To the Asian markets, a lot of the action in Australia today. This on interest rates and for Melbourne Cup Day, the race that stops the nation. So it uh, was certainly a, a big trade as the markets were closely watching the action on the track, but also from the RBA. And what you had was another rate increase. There used to be a time when the central bank didn't go anywhere near rates on Melbourne Cup Day. That's long since faded. So another move to the upside and it's out of context with what other central banks are doing at this stage. Interpretation is this could be the final one, though. And uh, you can see the market slightly weaker. Bigger falls elsewhere, though. Hong Kong stocks down more than 1% and the Japanese stock market down 1.3%. Steve. How do we feel about our production team uh, and their strap they wanted to put on it? Today? I don't even know if they did on the RBA. Are we even allowed to share this on it? Well, I don't know. You, no, maybe not. Can we do it? I think. Crikey, hikey. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's not kind of Australia trying to, I don't know. You happy with that? Do, you say, do, you actually, do Australians actually say crikey? I'm not in most cosmopolitan <laughs> cities. It's Maybe like, it's further, like people from my neck of the woods saying, gall blimey governor. Do we, we don't actually right. say it very often. Right. I mean, some of the more English terms, you don't hear them right around town either, do you? No. On the West End, you have to go into certain parts of the no. country to hear them. Gall blimey Mary Poppins, <laughs> uh, as the uh, great Englishman Dick Van Dyke once said. Uh, anyway, Chinese imports unexpectedly rose uh, returned to growth. In October, this is fascinating, rising 3%, a huge swing from the previous decline of 6.2% in September. However, exports actually in the world's second largest economy shrank 6.4% year on year, showing an uneven recovery is still underway. Let's get some analysis now with these fascinating data from Lin Lin, who joins us. Lovely to see you. Good morning to you, Steve. And yeah, also we saw with these headline indicators, uh, they were very much out in terms of the market expectations as well. Let's start with the bad news here, which is the exports. Now, it fell further into contraction for the month of October on a year-on-year basis versus September. So 6.4% versus 6.2%. And that's also much worse than the expectation, which was minus 3.2%. Now, when we look at exports here, we've seen every month since uh, May this year uh, that there have been falls on a year-to-year basis. Of course, economists really putting this down to sluggish uh, demand on a global level amid, of course, this uh, really uncertain outlook with these two wars that are going on at the moment and higher rates as well. Breaking down that data a bit more, exports to the US and the EU, they were already 
already in the doldrums and they remain there despite, of course, a weak base uh, falling 8.2 and 12.6% respectively on a year-to-year basis. Consumer goods like laptops, furnitures, that is also still in deep contraction. But there were still some bright spots in terms of transportation items. Auto exports still tracking really well up about 45% on a year-to-year basis, but very much in line with what we saw in September. On the import side, as you mentioned, we saw this surprise growth in October off the back of minus 6% in September, this swing of 9% here. Economists uh, uh, at uh, HSBC uh, during its uh, analyst note putting this really down to stronger domestic demand, particularly in relation to construction materials as well as uh, more demand in terms of commodities for iron ore and copper. So as you said, this data is definitely showing sort of this uneven recovery and we're set to get more with PPI and CPI numbers dropping later this week. Back to you. Uh, Superb analysis. Uh, Thank you very much indeed for that. Right, uh, Arabile, what, what else are we looking at on this show? Well, coming up then, Steve, we're going to be taking a look down under. Then rate hikes have returned as the RBA lifts its cash rate to a 12-year high. Plus, WeWork Wipeout will take you through the numbers after the office sharing firm, once America's most valuable startup, now has filed for bankruptcy. We'll get into that story and a whole lot more. Also coming up then on the show, we're going to be also speaking to the Watchers of Switzerland CEO, that's Brian Duffy, as the firm posts its first earnings report since concern over Rolex's Boucher acquisition sends shares ticking lower. Don't miss that conversation. It's a first on CNBC. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. The Reserve Bank of Australia has hiked its cash rate by 25 basis points to 4.35%, its highest level in 12 years. RBA Governor Michelle Bullock has said that any further hikes will be dependent on future data and evolving risks. The RBA is one of the last major central banks to still be lifting rates, having recently increased its inflation forecast for next year to 3.5%, with inflation only expected to return to target by the end of next year. Um, I know I want to really get involved in the sluice, but there's a, there's, a, there's a lesson here from the RBA statement for the market, and that is a pause is not a turn in the cycle. A pause is only a pause. Yeah, it's something I tried skip. to say about six months ago when, when the, 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 exactly, a pause and a skip doesn't necessarily mean that the Fed has stopped raising. And now the RBA is a great, but how many months did they have? Four, was it, I think, before the, in between? Right. They had a, a long gap before they hiked again. And I just, just, it's just a caveat, it's just a warning to everyone out there that a pause does not mean 
that we finish with the rate hiking cycle. And I think that's something the market, again, is just, you know, this cognitive distance. They don't want to know it. They don't want to know it. And again, back to the services side, that's where there's been a lot of heat in the market. And I told you when I came back after a trip in December, that it was extraordinary to see the level of spending at restaurants and cafes. You know, ones midweek that you think would just not be hugely populated where there are queues to the point where they can barely service restaurants and cafes. So I think it was, it's just extraordinary to see that pent up demand still. And this is obviously a COVID legacy where people want to have the experience, but it's not just and in we, Australia. You are, it's elsewhere, right? It's in the United States, everywhere. it's here in the UK. Well, and you and your restaurant bookings, quite hard to do, even for someone of your <laughs> ilk. Um, and your rep- Actually, not hard for you, is it? You just walk into any restaurant. Uh, the Fed's latest senior loan officer opinion survey, arguably the best acronym going, the SLUCE, uh, pointed to a weakening in demand for both commercial and residential loans, whilst lending standards continue to tighten. Bankers surveyed appointed to an uncertain outlook and funding costs and deteriorating credit quality as key reasons for keeping uh, credit conditions tight. We'll come back to this one later on because the Fed looks at the sluice uh, and so do we as well. But I'll just very, very briefly talk about this. So we talk about the 18-month cumulative and lagged effect from a hike down to its full ramifications for the economy. Now, bearing in mind, we've only just stopped hiking for now uh, from the Federal Reserve as well. I think there's a lot in there as well um, from the Senior Loan Officer Survey. I've been reading various pieces of copy. Uh, Goldman Sachs, for instance, talking about the weaker demand for all residential real estate and weaker demand for credit card, auto and other consumer uh, loans on net as well. But also deteriorating economic conditions is being cited in there as well. Uh, There was other data that was more interesting to me yesterday. Oh, go on then. Well, that was around attrition levels that a lot of workers are now holding on to their jobs for longer. And this was coming through from multiple different companies. And I thought that was fascinating because the message we've had is that the labour market's super strong. In fact, re-acceleration in the hiring. So the FM wages have been stronger, as we've seen from the strike action. And the whole message that you're getting from the employment side is that it's still very, very strong. And as a result, that's going to put pressure on the Fed. But the fact that people are now feeling a little bit nervous and not wanting to leave their positions, yeah. it's a subtle change in consumer behaviour, isn't it? Which is why you and I spend so much time on the jolts every month as well, yeah. looking at the, uh, the quits rate. OK, let us move on because uh, Mr Kashkari has been speaking as well. Yes, the Minneapolis Fed President Neil Kashkari says he would rather the Fed over-tighten, this is exactly the point we were just making, than not do enough to tamp down inflation. In an interview with the Wall Street Journal, Kashkari said under tightening would not see inflation return to its 2% target for a reasonable time, adding that some, quote, concerning data suggests wages and inflation may be settling above 2%. Uh, tune in for Steve Leesman's exclusive one-to-one interview with the Chicago Fed President Austin Goolsby. That's coming up at 2 p.m. Central European time. WeWork has filed for bankruptcy, capping a tumultuous fall from grace for the office-sharing company. The firm says the filing will only affect its locations in the United States and Canada and that it has reached agreements with the vast majority of creditors for its restructuring plan, which will include cutting what they describe as non-operational leases. Arabile, I think some people will look at the end of an era of cheap money and say, look, this was just a symptom of uh, that era, that uh, it was one of the greatest excesses you've seen in corporate America, creating this company, the sort of leases they took out, the amount of cheap money they used to create this business. 100%. And I mean, they they kind of flooded the market and tried to get as much out of it as humanly possible, right? I mean, those leases were 10 to 15-year leases, and yet the leases that people would, I suppose, lease from, from WeWork were only about two months to two years at best. And, you know, you're trying to supplement that income, unfortunately, 
at a high rate of knots, which is very, very difficult to do. Let's remember that when it was founded in 2010, it seemed like the greatest idea at the time. Of course, 2011 seemed like it would definitely uh, pick up as an entity. Um, it then tried to get into several multi-locations here as well. In, 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 uh, between 2017 and 2018, I mean, Masayoshi-san had already invested close to $9 billion. Uh, US dollars in the company, raising its valuation to at least 20 billion. Then the following year, it went all the way up to 47 billion. And people wondering, where did that come from? I mean, on the other side of the Atlantic, you had IWG asking itself, what have we missed? We've got better metrics. We've got more locations. We've been around since 1989 and still are unable then uh, to have the same or similar valuation. Obviously, the planning to, to list back in 2019 even hurt as well. Look, let, let's be brutally honest about it. What We haven't said the, the, the glaring truth here. It was nonsense. It was nonsense from day one. And, and, and the truth is, this show said so. So we're not, I mean, look at the tapes. The fact of the matter is, this was a property company yep. masquerading as a technology company. Yep. There is no two ways about it. I take on board everything you said about the leases and everything you've both said about the, the, the cheap money era as well. There is no doubt that that was the fuel in the fire for utter nonsense. It was like, we are a technology company. We are a new concept, as you quite rightly say, with yeah. Mark Dixon, who has been scratching his head on this one for ever since yeah. we've been speaking mm. to him as well. It was nonsense to try and get technology valuation. And it just typifies everything that is wrong with this market. It is the, the will to try and create something that doesn't exist and try and convince other people to buy something that doesn't exist at an exacerbated price as well. Quite frankly, I've been saying it for a decade and I'll say it again now, it was absolute nonsense. It did upend the real estate market, though, the commercial real estate yes, market, it did. right? Yes, because it, did. it gave you a sense that you didn't have to hold on to very expensive headquarters because you wouldn't have a, a foot in a major city centre, right? There are yeah. other options, but is what it told the market. Of people doing that, Karen. Well, just, they didn't masquerade as a technology company. Just, no, that's the point. Too, the model was an interesting model. Right, so you made all these acquisitions, you thought to yourself, we're going to do all of these things. For example, they even put in something like we live and we grow right which is an education center on one side and then we live as supposed to be for a residential properties as well so you made all these acquisitions and then of course the ceo had that massive purchase of a jet worth 63 million he bought the rights to the word we then resold that word back to the company for 5.1 billion us dollars to enrich himself as well. So all of those factors so all also make well. a play. But, 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 but do you know what? I don't mind a business model that someone tries something a bit different. You talk about we grow, was it we educate, was it? We live and we, we live. Grow. That's fine, it's a business model. You try it and if it doesn't work, it just becomes another part of the power law where the ones that win, win exponentially, the rest don't as well. But it was this idea that really smart, people on Wall Street. I'd actually, I don't blame Adam Newman. I don't blame WeWork for trying something on. If some idiot wants to buy the concept, that's up to them as well. Yeah. I, I hear what you're saying. They tried a business model, that's fine. Uh, and they use cheap money, that's fine as well. And then you know what? They, they're not the first company in the world to have long-term liabilities uh, and, uh, and short-term uh, revenues coming in. But what they are is they were selling an idea. In fact, I don't blame the company at all. I blame the people who bought into it. 
absolute nonsense, sold by Wall Street, by vested interests. You thought, do you know what? This sounds nonsense. But do you know what? If someone's willing to buy it, then who am I to say well, otherwise? Well, we know who bought yeah. it. It was Masayoshi's son, right? Yeah. And obviously, this was one of those big hitting investments that knocked his reputation. $22 billion. It was uh, contributed to uh, yeah. the, the market saying, does he actually have the Midas touch? I think yeah. prior to that, and with a lot of other investments going sour at the time, the market then questioned yeah. whether his finger in every pie strategy was the right one. And yeah. we haven't mentioned the other thing, which, let's be honest about it, they were all so unlucky. <laughs> Here's my, my, my tiny uh, kind of um, branch of, 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 of compassion for them. They got unlucky with the pandemic as well. That didn't help. Let's be brutally well, honest so about it. So that was the time when they were trying to restructure right so now you've let go of Adam Newman he's he's left a CEO you've got a new team that perhaps is trying to now secure things and made things a little bit better then the pandemic happens and of course then you can't build things up again and they had hoped that 70% occupancy would help but they got to that figure far too late and things were already too far gone and you know I'll tell you something when I came off the trading floor in 1999 1998 1999 it was it was clear that you know the, the open outcry was dying I went into what was called a carousel where lots of smaller companies uh, used office space and pulled some of the expenses there and pulled some of the the, the, yeah, the internet expense, whatever you, uh, to try tra- uh, trading online for a bit. I didn't like it and that's why I became a journalist, quite frankly. And plus that, I wasn't very good at that side of things, let's be brutally honest. But the truth of the matter is, that concept of having sh- uh, lots of different businesses working in an office space, that was around 20 odd years ago. Yeah. And yeah. a lot of people are still doing it and making vast amounts of money at it. it was the IWG, we have their earnings coming out very soon Markets. as well. So we'll yeah. definitely take a look at I that. I was known as Regis, yeah. 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 Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com or join us again on the show with me, Steve Sedgwick, and Karen Cho, weekdays on CNBC.